0: Welcome to the Seafood Matters Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Cowie. In each episode, I speak with industry leaders, fishery scientists, fishermen, and seafood chefs. We'll highlight the importance of seafood in our daily lives, economy, and environment. Whether you catch your own seafood, love cooking it, or want to learn more about where your fish comes from, You'll find it all here on the Seafood Matters Podcast. If you enjoy this episode, hit subscribe, share it with a friend, or leave a five-star review. And you can get in touch with me by visiting seafoodmatterspodcast.com. Mike Park was 11 when his successful career began, making creels with netting that washed up on the beaches after storms. Becoming a full-time fisherman at 17, owning his first boat by 21, he fished successfully for 30 years until 1995, when he joined the Scottish Whitefish Producers Association, the largest fishermen's association in Europe, of which he is still Chief Executive Officer. Rising to the heights of multiple directorships, and sharing his encyclopaedic knowledge with international fishery scientists and policy makers. He's a trustworthy advisor to our ministers during the annual rounds of quota negotiations. In this episode, Mike talks about the industry challenges and achieving his goals of sustainable and harmonious accord between the environment, consumers and fishermen.
1: A lot of people say to me, you must come from a fishing family, when in fact, I don't. Huh. The I was brought up down the very front of the harbour in Stonehaven, and my father, he started off in the Royal Navy, went to the Merchant Navy, and latterly he was climbing up poles, sorting lines for the what was then the board. So my direct family never had any connection to the sea, but my uncles had boats in Stonehaven. And my whole youth from the age of seven or eight years old was spent in the summer weeks aboard those vessels, which I look back now and think that when you talk about apprenticeship, you know, that was the best apprenticeship I could ever have had. Although, I must admit, I was sick every day I went out until I was about 12 years old, to be fair.
0: Yeah. So, it's not in, as I say, the salt's not in the blood, but it was your passion from a young age. Yeah.
1: So, you know, I guess everyone, you know, when they went home from school, went out to play football and various other things. You know, I went into the nearest shed to make creels wow. to catch lobsters and crab. I used to, yeah, just go out in the creel boats all weekend. Me and my mates would sit and make creels all winter. So from a very very early age, my mate and I shared a creel boat. So we started making money at a very early age. And I remember buying my mum her first tumble dryer when I was 11 years old. Uh, you know, as a family, we didn't have much money to go around, but I remember from a season of lobsters, my mum used to complain about never getting the wash and dry. So I bought that first tumble dryer when I was 11 year old. So that's my claim to fame, I'm afraid.
0: When you were making the creels, I would have thought it's, you You actually reminded me of my own youth because my father had a sea net boat. They sea netted between anything, the Murray Firth or off would a kind berry certain times of the year, but in the summer time, or no, in the winter they would do that in the summer. In the winter they would go to the creels. And yeah. I, as a we as a young kid still in school, I just used to love when we would go away into some forests and they'd be looking for hazel. And that's that was the best. That's what they were looking for because it, they could get it to bend yeah.
1: straight over and make their mm-hmm. creels, is that sort of it? That's it, we used to steam them to, to get them to bend and I remember you know, scouring the beaches for old net and we used to untie the, the net and put it on a needle so we could then make our own creels with the twine that we had in the needles. And from about the age of uh, probably nine years old, uh, I used to be able to gut fish as gut quickly as my you know elderly sort of peers so all summer when the, one of the crew would go on holiday one week over you know each crew would go on holiday one week in alternative sort of uh, routines I used to go aboard the boat and they used to give me five pound a week for uh, working on the vessel for a week and that was in the days of the uh you know six coiler side and the beckles yeah. coiler and scooping fish into boxes and yeah so I used to get up at three in the morning would sail out get back at six seven at night And that was me. And, you know, I did that uh, all the way through until my professional career. But, uh, you know, one story I need to tell you is that when I was 11 years old, I did six weeks at Rockall aboard a vessel called the Ocean Reward at the Greatlands. Uh, I never knew the skipper. I never knew any of the crew. But one of the runners for one of the fishing companies in Aberdeen got me on board this vessel. So all my school holidays were spent at Rockall. Uh, you know clipping halibut and ling and conger eels and everything and you know i guess you would get done for child cruelty nowadays if you were putting an 11 year old aboard a vessel especially with the health and safety but yeah i look back and i think you know people would think you know how you know i guess you know it just wouldn't be tolerated nowadays but i look back and think god what a privileged upbringing you had really privileged, and no one would get that nowadays. And that's, that's probably you know what was the making of me going into my professional career and having my first vessel at the age of 21.
0: You almost took the words away from me there because I was just, from seeing the, the, your, the look in your face as you say that, and the words you say, so it's, it's obviously a something very similar, I feel myself. I, I loved my childhood. And it was most of it was spent either yeah. on a beach or on a boat.
1: Yeah, and it was—I remember one of the—you the, know—having a downside of my career. I think I was ten years old. I fell over the side of one of the Creole vessels uh, just next to Dunottar Castle. It was about three hundred yards off the land, so it wasn't far off. But I fell over the side, and he managed to catch me in the water as I slipped past the vessel, and he banned me from his boat for a year. And as a kid, I thought, how terrible can life be? Uh, this guy's now banned me for a year. And looking back now, I can understand the horror in his face as this, you know, this strange 10-year-old kid was floating by his boat in the water, no life jacket, nothing. And you think, God, how traumatized was he? Yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: But as you say, unfortunately, our children don't get that sort of... Uh, they're either not allowed to or they have to have certificates or qualifications or you would never get an 11 year old to on a boat going to sea never now i don't think and would not far less rockle
1: no it was uh, you know i tell some of my my colleagues and that about my life back then, and they'll say, well, you know, your dad is bound to have known someone aboard the vessel to allow you to go there. No, we didn't know anyone. I didn't know anyone. And I remember we sailed from Aberdeen, and we stopped off Scrabster, and we picked up a guy called John Dennett, who was rowed off in this little wee coble for the harbour to us lying off the harbour, and he could barely get out the vessel because he was absolutely off his head on the drink. <laughs> I remember that. And then and then we sailed from there to Stornoway. And th- this vessel ocean war was from Anstruther. And, uh, and the skipper was called Ecky Eke Eck Anderson was his name. Uh, and they sailed into Stornoway. And the reason they liked going to Stornoway is they all liked the bingo. So what happened was that they would go to Stornoway, they would go to the bingo, and then during the day we would go off and rip for mackerel for bait. So they carried so much frozen bait for the lines. But they maybe three or four days, we'd just nip out a stone away and we'd rip for bait and come back into stone away. And after a few days, you would then head off to Rockall And I remember the first few days at Rockall seeing halibut like I'd never seen before. You were talking about 14, 16 stone halibut, you know, genies, as we called them in them days. And what would happen was that they would have these woolen gloves and they'd be hauling the lines over the roller. And they would see a big halibut coming to the surface, you know, the big white surface going round and round. And they would just ring the bell up in the wheelhouse. Gene and I would ring the bell. Everyone would run forward with a clip. They would get the clip in this 16-stone beast, and they would pull it on the deck. And I I would remember that thing. And you you never see these fish nowadays, let alone having the privilege of catching them. So can I ask,
0: is the the mackerel you were catching the bait, was it, I, I assumed, when you were catching bait, it was for creels, but obviously not.
1: No, the, the, the bait was for the Greatlands, uh, so they used to carry squid uh, and some other uh, bait. Squid was the main one, which was frozen, they used to take a in frozen blocks. But then to supplement that, uh, they used to catch mackerel and keep that for the fresh bait for the first few days. And during the trip, as you caught things like tusk, the low value species, they used to cut up into what they called dollops, and they would use that to then bait the lines. Uh, but one of the, the one of the things I recall more than anything is that we used to carry aboard that vessel, what they call the Feral Bond, which means I think you had like 24 bottles of spirits. You'd like 300 cases of beer. I exaggerate, but it was a lot of beer to a kid anyway. And uh, they used to come around with the mustard jar four times a day. So you got three fingers on the mustard jar and there was a bit of tape around it. So four times a day they would come around with OVD, dark rum. And this would be handed to you four times a day, so you would be sitting there baiting hooks round a basket, and you'd be handed this 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 jug for for what of a better phrase of OVD rum to get you through the day, and that was four times. So, you know, I look back and think, how is there not more fingers lost, or hands lost, or fatalities? I'm not entirely sure, but no, that that's what it was. And you've got to respect it for what it was at that time. From from
0: there, how what's the journey? From there to because I can remember, well, you you had your own you got you reached the stage when you did have your own boat. If I remember correctly, was it the 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 Nebula?
1: It that was my first boat. Yeah. So you know, after Rockall and all the experiences I had there, I then you know throughout my career embarked every summer I'd be working on the vessels, uh, and then obviously I was still going to school at the time. Uh, my my whole focus was on leaving school and going to the fishing industry. And I did, so I left the school and I went aboard this new uh, 50-foot seine uh, net vessel called the Darona, which was uh, skippered by Albert McIntosh. But while I was there, I got the results from my O-levels at school. And I was very fortunate that I got 10 O-levels, I got eight A's and two B's. And my mum pleaded with me to do something other than fishing. You know, she'd been brought up in the harbour, seen fishing, and she didn't see that as a, a prosperous or worthwhile career for for our only son. So I then went away to become a cadet uh, with a Ben line in the Merchant Navy, a navigating cadet. And I did a trip in the Far East and a correspondence course coming out to me. I did a spell at Hull Nautical uh, College as well. But then after my first uh, trip, I came home. And the second day I was home, I got a call from uh, Aberdeen Inshore Fish Selling who were the agents for a number of vessels, but one of the vessels they were an agent for was the Argonaut. Oh, yeah. Uh, I was asked if I would go away for two trips in the Argonaut. They were looking for, for someone to relieve, one of the crew who was on shore. And I said, yes. <laughs> so I spent seven weeks as a, as a 17-year-old boy on the Argonaut. And seven weeks, we landed every Thursday. If you didn't land a Thursday, you landed a Friday. But you sailed again on the Friday. If you landed the Wednesday, Thursday, you sailed the Friday. If you landed the Friday, you just turned about and you went away again. And for seven weeks, I remember I made four thousand nine hundred pounds for seven weeks' work. And you know, that was that was seven hundred pounds a week average uh, for, 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 for a week's work. And I recall at that time my father was climbing poles to sort the electricity wires. His wage was 30 pounds a week. And from that wage, I bought my first house. I did get my mum to sign the papers. I wasn't old <laughs> enough. And I bought a 36 foot boat for my father to take out anglers so he could make money at the weekends. After that job finished, I then got a job on the Helene with uh, Billy Malcolm. And while I was there for a while, I then went on shore to do my ticket, my mate's full and special ticket while I was 19. Uh, I then passed that, went back in the Helene, the mate got the sack, For I can't remember what it was, but the mate at the time got the sack. And the skipper threw me the keys and said, I'm going to win holiday for a month. It's yours. So there I was, you know, just into my (laughs) 20s, 86-foot C-net vessel. Here's the keys. It's yours for a month. And during that month, I broke his record twice. I had three landings, and I broke the skipper's record twice. And then, you know, the arrogance of me at the time, I went to the office and I said, I think I can make you money. And they gave me this old trawler they were converting to the sea net, and that was called the Jazerine. So, my first ever vessel was the Jazerine, which I took command of when I was 21 years old. And I was given a 25% share in that by Sirian Wood at the time, the Dawn Fishing Company, which I had to repay back over time. And I did that until I was 25, where I then built the vessel that you mentioned, Jim. Which was the De Nebula and built that at the Millers of St. Moran's. Yeah.
0: Going back to a couple of points, would the Argonaut, would, would Davy Smith have had that then?
1: Davy was, yeah. So me and Davy become great friends after that. And Davy Smith certainly was uh, the skipper at the time. And, you know, I've never seen anyone catch yeah. fish like that yeah. in my life. Uh, seriously. I mean, I, I thought I was good, but you would go. T- you know, you'd be finished the last haul at night with 600 in a deck to gut, you know, and you would get clear, you would get clear in time to put the done away in the morning. It was just, it was a phenomenal machine, the Argonaut. I think it was the Argonaut, th- would it be the Argonaut three or four at the time? I yeah. think it would
0: be. Yeah, was it was the, Ar- the five, the last one, I think, maybe.
1: That's, that's mm-hmm. correct. And the, I mean, the, the built at Miller's, yeah. built it, not Miller's, built it, uh, Camel yeah. sorry, Camel Tank, yeah.
0: The other thing I was going to say, ask you your money, the money, the four thousand and something you made was that? Did you say seven weeks?
1: Seven that, weeks, that work, would, yeah. And, that, and that would be—you'd be,
0: have felt you were a millionaire back then before. <laughs>
1: oh, yeah. I mean, I, I mean, that's what I'm saying. I actually worked out. I think it was seven hundred and seventy pound average a week, so it was more than four thousand nine hundred. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you take into consideration my father was making £30 a week. And the mere fact that I put a deposit down for my first house and bought a 36-foot angling vessel was seven weeks' money. It's just astonishing. Yeah.
0: yeah. The, the other thing that you reminded me when you were saying about the way your mother tried to discourage you from when you got your O levels and she tried to discourage you from going to fishing remind me of a... F- Very funny thing, my my father, who was a fisherman all his life, told me that when he was a child, and his mother and father, they lived on the shore, very close to the harbor at Helmsdale, and there was traveling people. I mean, they were called tinkers and like gypsy type of people, and they used to travel around a lot. And they would, they had tents or wagons and horses, and, uh, and they would stay in certain areas for a while. And Helmsdale was one of them. And they stayed on the shore, not all that far from. Where my father lived as a boy, and he, he used to tell us that when just say that. This tinkers, as they were called, I don't know if that's maybe very politically correct now, but that's I'm just re- repeating what they were called at the time. And he says that the their the tinkers, their mother and fathers, if the children were misbehaving, they used to say, "Luke, if you don't behave yourself, we'll make you fisherman." <laughs> he says. He said the fishing was so poor. He said even the tinkers looked down on them.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I and mean, and in, in fairness, we get the same said in schools now that if you don't study, you'll end up fishing. And what sort of career is that to aspire to? So yeah, it's, it's almost done done uh, full circle. But when when you look back, the opportunities that I was provided then. You know both in terms as a young lad but also coming into the industry as a as a professional uh, that opportunities are perhaps not there now, uh, and perhaps maybe going forward that's something we need to look at to try and attract and encourage you know youngsters back into the to the industry to be fair. We need to find some trigger that generates that degree of enthusiasm to to attract people into the sector
0: yeah, that's for sure it doesn't seem to be the case uh, unless it's maybe a certain families i see you know maybe but it's very much more the skipper or owner and their children will come up and get their tickets and keep going but you don't see many as we would call them deckhands just
1: no, and I guess there's, there's there's many reasons for that, Jim, that, you know, if you go way back in our day, that, you know, the amount of young kids leaving school going to further education was certainly less than it is now. You know, I can't remember many of my friends going on to, to university or whatever. Most just went into the sort of primary sectors, the building, electricians, plumbers, that sort of thing. So if you then, you know, quantify that with the fact that very few people now Want to enter what I would call that dirty industries, you know they want to do something else. They want to sit at a the table. They want to work with computers. They want to energize their brain, you know. So that that so you've you've more people going to further education. You have less people coming into manual work, and even there, you know, a, a marine career is at the bottom of that ladder perhaps. And when you look at the marine career in my day, you had fishing. That that was it. Maybe the Royal Navy and the Merchant Navy. But if you look at the marine career now, you've got Royal Navy, Merchant Navy, you've got oil and gas, you've got offshore renewables in the west of Scotland, you've got salmon farms, you've now got seaweed farms, and then you've got this very unique sector at the bottom called the fishing sector, which the way it operates is not a vacation, it's a way of life. It's a way of life. And you've got to be willing to make that sacrifice to enter that sector. And I think that's why now that we're suffering probably more if not equal with some of the the poorer sectors, whereby we just cannot attract that next generation. And we need to start thinking out of the box about what we need to do to actually make that attractive again.
0: I completely agree with you, Michael. And even, I've I've spoken about it to people, and one in particular, I'm absolutely certain you'll know him well enough, Alan Addison. He's on the venture, BF Venture now, good friend of Alan for a long time. One of the th- things he rightly says about this, he said, the danger is there's going to be a whole generation lost where all the knowledge on the fishing and seasons and where, where you go at what time of the year, to, and that he
1: says, that's all going to be lost. Yeah. I mean, the difficulty is that, Jim, fishing is a way of life. You know, there's many things you need to sacrifice to be be an operative within the fishing industry. And certainly, if you want to become your own boss and your own manager of people and employer of people, you know, it means that, you know, you're not going to get to football training with your mates all the time. Your girlfriend's going to have to give up that party on a Saturday night because you're not there. And these are things now that, whereas in, in our day, we didn't balance them. You know, the youngsters of today balance all these things. And one of the most, you know, foremost questions we get when a youngster is joining the sector is, Do you have Wi-Fi? Yeah. You know, in my day it was, do you have a VHS recorder? You know, or do you have That's a TV? Right. But it's 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 significantly different now. Do you have Wi-Fi? So and I guess it's just changing times. But you know, we we will have to find ways of whether it's how we pay the crew. Whether it's how we engage the crew, you know, do we have to go to rotor systems as a as a as a normal rather than you know a special thing? So we are going to have to think about how we produce the skippers of tomorrow because employing non-UK crew, you know, from from Ghana, Sri Lanka, India, Philippines, Indonesia, you know, will fill the gaps to some degree, but it will not produce the stars of tomorrow. And that's really what we need to focus on. How 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 can we produce that stars of tomorrow? You know, I always say to people, if you can't be fully committed, then don't come. Because the fishing industry will only prosper those that are fully committed. And it's like it's like any other sector. Unless you're willing to work hard, your dreams just will not come yeah. true. Well, I had a situation obviously
0: the last 20 years of my career is with a, the seafood restaurant, Captain's Galley and Scrabster. And this young lad came to the back door one day. He's still in school, he's looking for a job. Hadn't a job to give him, but couldn't not employ him because he was so positive with such a great attitude and so keen to work. And it was just almost infectious. And in he came, started working with us, obviously, in the evenings and weekends, when he wasn't at school, eventually all he wanted to do was be a fisherman, and I introduced him to a few uh, skippers and boat owners and at reusing scraps that and eventually got one that he was quite keen to be. Uh, to, when he left, he was left school by now, and he had to go on board, but he's mother and father had a real, oh, no, no, no way you're going to, he says, do you, he says, Jim, he says, do you mind if I ask them to come down, will you speak to them? So he says, yeah, by all means, no problem. I've no problem with that. And it was, I, my, I'm not going to start going on about me, but we've all heard it before about all the negativities. And I says to them, I says, look to both parents, I said, the perceptions of, it was, it. I'm not sure if it's the same, I don't think so, but the perceptions of the fishing was, you came ashore and you went to the pub and that's where you stayed until you were back at sea. I says, that's gone now. I says, that's all gone. And I says, where we used to talk about a fisherman or a skipper, I says, that in the wheelhouse, I says Is that the modern boats now, it's maybe a skipper to a degree, but they're businessmen, and the and the yeah. the ones that are are successful are good are good businessmen, and and yeah. I says forget that perception. that it's a career as well. Well, that young lad, that would have been maybe when he was seventeen. He did go on board the boat, the parents thanked me. He did go on board, he loved it. He's now got his own boat. He's late 20s. He's got, it's a small proner, doesn't matter. And he's still just got that vibrant,
1: uh, he's such a positive young, lovely young lad. Yeah. And they you know, you get these stories in life where someone is just willing to work their socks off. And you you know, you, you if you're gonna be successful at anything, Jim, you really have to go that extra mile. I mean, it's when, you know, I stepped ashore and came into this more formally. I mean, I carried out the, you know, director of the association and in, in Aberdeen, and then I was vice chair of the whitefish, chair of the whitefish, executive chair of the whitefish, and then chief executive. And all through that period in time, I had to hone my skills because, you know, it was different from catching fish to coming on shore to write position papers, uh, which, which I do uh, regularly nowadays, and I, I you know, did uh, I, uh, I, an open university degree in, in European politics, and that was partly to understand the political system about negotiating, but it was also about, you know, how can I write papers? with any degree of expertise here and that lent me a skill that if I hadn't done that I just certainly wouldn't have that skill so from being a fisherman moving into a leadership role there was things that I had to do to shape my life to make sure that I could rep- represent the fishermen and the fishing industry uh, to the best of my abilities but but I guess the role I play now is you know whereas when I was in the wheelhouse and you know was very very selfish you know the role of my my remit was to make money for me to pay the bank, to pay the crew. I had the same crew for 17 years, at two vessels at one point, same bunch of guys for 17 years. And to be able to produce them and the families with the money and the standard of life they required, I had to be selfish. I really had to be selfish and, you know, tell fibs from time to time and, you know, just switch my radios off and disappear from time to time, which was all part and parcel of the game then but now i've got to to accept and understand various opinions and consolidate that into central points that can satisfy everyone and that's that that's a very different skill from stepping into the wheelhouse being a selfish alpha male and getting on with it to the point where you've got to sit down take advice consolidate that you know basically still out the nonsense and produce the position papers that then go and try and take your industry to the next level. And there's many people like me in there. I'm not the only one. There's many people feeding into that same thing. But I guess what I'm trying to point to is that, you know, we start in an area where we can try and do our best. But if you're looking to shift into another area, whether you're middle-aged like I was at the time or not, you really need to step up your game. And it's it's the same and whatever you do. You've got to step up your game. And I've always said to my kids, one of them followed me into the industry. And when I come on shore, uh, he stepped on shore as well. And I've always said to my children that, you know, I'm doing what I do to provide you the opportunity to do what you do. I'm not saying you need to follow me, but I want you to do what I did, Was do what you want to do. And essentially, you know, my three kids, you know, one's a doctor, one's got a public affairs committee and one's uh, a company and one's got an oil services company. So they've went on and done their own thing, but they've done it to the best of their ability. And I think, you know, young people coming into the fishing industry, that's all we can ask them to do. Do it to the best of your ability. And if you do, then you'll deliver the dreams that you're seeking to deliver.
0: The one thing I must pick you up on, and I think you've maybe forgotten who you're speaking to that knows a little about the fishing industry, <laughs> you're not going to try to convince me. You're telling me you're a skipper and you were feeling selfish and telling fibs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's...
1: uh Yeah, I used Sorry, to... and I, I must. I and I got myself... No, I know, but I must tell you a story, and I got myself into trouble over the heads of this, actually, Jim. I think it was about the third year of the and It was a lovely, beautiful day. We used to sail on a Sunday. The The, the, the minibus would come up from Pittenweem, St Monin's, Arons Struthers, because we had crew from there. They would come up through Stonehaven, they would pick up the Stonehaven crew, we'd get aboard the, the boat, and because everyone knew their job, say they'd been there 17 years, uh, we used to just do the things we did, throw off the ropes and set away. And ordinarily, I'd be heading out to the Norwegian sector and it would take me 17, 18 hours to get there. So we used to leave Aberdeen about 10 o'clock, out of the harbour, get something to eat. I would switch the radios off, you know, confident as ever. I knew where I was going. Whether MDLs, you know, knew, I'm not caring, but I didn't want to talk to anybody. That was it. And we set off and then. What I used to do was get a call just before we entered the Norwegian zone, which was normally about seven or eight o'clock at night. And we'd get a call to put on the cord ends, have tea. And I remember coming up to the wheelhouse and sitting down and uh, the gentleman who was on watch at the time saying to me, I've just been listening to the news. And there's a, a Montrose registered vessel, which the Nebula was, it was ME50. There's a Montrose registered vessel being reported missing with all crew. And I'm sitting looking at him thinking, who could that be? <laughs> who, who could that be? You know, we're the only boat from Montrose with eight of a crew, and we're sitting here, you know, flat, calm day sailing along. And what had happened was about six hours earlier, not long out of Aberdeen, the EPIRB had fallen off the top of the mast, bounced on the shelter deck and bounced in the water. Nobody knew. Obviously, the systems being what they are, we were then reported missing. Uh, There was a helicopter search out, they said they found debris, it was on teletext, my mum and dad saw it. You know, vessel reported missing with all hands, uh, wreckage spotted, all the rest of it. And someone that you know well comes into this story. And what we used to have to do in the days, Jim, was actually call into uh, Stavanger Radio and report the position you were entering the Norwegian zone the fish you were entering with, which was zero, and you'd commence fishing at X the next day. So, but on this occasion, I actually contacted Stonehaven Radio, which was still in existence at that time. And I contacted Stonehaven Radio, and the response came back, hello, Mike, are you okay? <laughs> yeah, yeah, perfectly fine, why? And, and at that time, Nori Bremner, who was a good friend of me and the family, had been listening in because Nori knew that we'd been reported missing and immediately he heard that he then phoned up my wife and of course my wife at that time had a, a circle of friends in the house and they answered the phone and said that's nori bremner on the phone he's okay uh so i actually turned the vessel round at that time and i steamed back 12 hours to the harbor and we remained in the harbor for 12 a eh, for for the whole week at that time because the family got such a shake up such a shake up that you know, the ministers were at the door and everything. So you know, that puts a, a, a tangibility, a reality on it. But I must pay testimony to to Nori Bremner at that time because not only did he help us then, but in my very first trip, the skipper's instructions were, before you put to sea, phone Nori. And Nori I sailed in the Sunday, Nori put me right on top of the fish on the Monday. And after three days, we come in, you know, cold boat load. And that was down to Nori as well. So, you know, and I must give him a shout out, all I mean, he's gone now, but what a help he was to me and others at the time. It's,
0: a, it's staggering, which will not in any ways surprise you, Michael, just how many fishermen have said that to me. He was such a. Mm-hmm. And I worked a lot with him in these latter days and very close to him. And he bought a lot of fish direct off him and a lot of his marketing when, when he was at sea himself, but it was so funny. He would, you would call him at the house and he would, all you would get is, oh, wait a minute. And he would, he had a room in the back. I don't know if you're ever in his house, but he had a room route out in the front where he was looking over the bay. And I don't think there was one bit of equipment, and a wheelhouse of a modern board that wasn't in that room as well
1: <laughs> yeah yeah and i think andrew's getting into the same vein and now as you'd well have, it's almost you'd like have some wall chart, the
0: whole yeah. size of the wall and he would have pins on it where every boat was fishing and you could you could ring him at yeah. any time and he would just pick a name of a boat at random and he would say yes he's just hauled it <laughs> How many fish he had. Yeah. No,
1: he was a he was a he was a he was a character that I say many of us rested on at the time. As did Andrew at the time as well. He was a great support for for Andrew. But no, so that was that was uh Norrie at the time. He phoned the house and said, Look, you can all you can all rest safe. He's he's okay. And I spoke to my wife and and I can recall at this time, Jim, that I was sitting in the wheelhouse in tears because I just thought, there for the grace of God, go I. You know, it could have all been horribly different, but uh, we turned the boat around and, and came home and spent a week in port, and after that, we then sailed again.
0: Yeah. Michael, did you... What What took you to the next stage? Did you feel you had something going from coming ashore and getting involved in the Scottish White Producers Association and things like that? Did you feel you had... Was it something to give back to an industry or... Did you see it
1: as a career move? It was a way back during the uh, the separation in, in the Scottish Whitefish, uh, where the Fishermen's Association Limited basically peeled away into a new association, association on the basis that, you know, we weren't saying enough about withdrawing from Europe as, a, as an association. And it was at that time that George Sutherland, who was chairman at the time, was coming to the end of his career. And he'd identified, obviously, through some of the, the negotiating discussions that had been on around the table, that myself and Alex Smith had something to offer, and he asked us if we would step up to the mark. So Alex Smith then went on be- to become chairman, and then you know went on to become president. Of the SFF, uh, I came in as vice chairman. They moved up to chairman, and I liked what I did, and I liked the people I represented. I understood the arguments. I thought it was reasonable in in getting our points across without being you know obsessive or obstructive or being abusive about it. Uh, and I then just, you know, maintained that role. And as I say, it went from vice chair to chair to executive chairman and eventually over to chief executive, which is a completely different role. And we now employ a number of people across, you know, a number of areas like fisheries policy, offshore wind, uh, we now have a, a population modular, a modeler in our midst as well. So, you know. We we've grown the association and we're under the great stewardship of our chairman David Milne as well, who you probably know. So David's been in there a number of years and he's got his handle on the tiller and he keeps me and others in the straight and narrow. And everybody everyone needs that. But you know, from an association just basically treading water, we've become very proactive across a number of fields, both nationally and internationally. And you may have seen in the press recently that we've been awarded a three million pound grant to go and build new state of the art training facilities, headquarters for ourselves, and indeed facilities for the wider seafood sector. So we're about to embark on that uh, very shortly and it should be built hopefully by the end of next year. So, but getting back to the initial question about, you know, why did you become involved in this? I guess I was, attracted into it by someone thinking that I had something to give, George Sutherland, uh, you know, and trying to prove to him that I did. And as I said, I went on to do the degree in uh, European politics, you know, and, you know, here we are a great number of years later um, still in the seat. And I was telling someone yesterday, Jim, to be fair, that, while well, a member of Europe, I attended 24 December councils, you know, that in itself should be worthy of a medal, to be fair. Uh, and of course, now, you know, I'm here sitting in uh, London at the uh, at the fisheries negotiations. And nowadays we have to negotiate with Faro, we have to negotiate with Norway, we have to go- negotiate with the EU. So the, the experiences that I've had through these decades have actually, you know, helped me well in understanding the, the current situation and being able to position the views of my association and indeed work with others position the, the views of the wider sector to ensure that we get deals that, that, that keep the industry in place. It's
0: interesting when you mentioned Johnny Thompson, I knew Johnny really well. He's a, I think you'll, you'll, as a skipper yourself, you'll get this. I think he was the only fisherman ever to make this point with me. I was up in Loch he had horizon at that time. He landed a beautiful shot of fish. And on the seal, I bought his ha- small haddock. I had an order, a customer wanted them, and I bought them. And that was on a Thursday night. Now, that's nothing significant in that, but as you probably, I, I'm sure you'll know, that was a pattern with that lad then, they would fish from they would go out Sunday night, fish to Thursday, back home again. So I was back up on the Tuesday, and Johnny came up to me and he says, "How did you get on? You bought my small haddocks. How did you get on with as as he called it, marfish? How did you get on with my fish? I says, "I'm fine, Johnny." Said, yeah, no, I wanted them. I mean, I was pushed, as you know, with the auction, I was pushed pretty hard to get them. And so I paid quite a big price for them. But I says, look, it was an order somebody wanted. And I got them, sent to it, them to him. He's very happy. So, no, it's all fine. And he's turned and says to me, I'm fine pleased to hear that, Jim. I was a bit worried in case you paid too much for
1: them. <laughs> very rarely do you hear that yeah yeah i mean john john was formidable i mean you know our views differed and the big discussion at that time was not about whether we supported europe or we didn't support the position in europe you know the the big debate at that time is that you need to stop speaking to government we need to put a solid stance in here you need to stop speaking to government Tell them to withdraw from Europe, and you disengage. And of course, as a responsible sector, there was a number of things. Even while as a member of Europe, you had to negotiate and discuss uh, and inform. And we couldn't do that. And that was the big split. Uh, and of course, they went away and you know formed their own association. It was, it was a learning curve for me, and it was a learning curve for others. But you know, people like Tom Hay, people like John Thompson, they believed in what they were doing, and they were very, very able and capable people. Looking back now, very able and capable people. And, you know, John, in fairness, was probably one of the most intelligent fishermen that I've ever come across.
0: I would have put him in the same realms as Norrie Bremner.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of the most, you know, informed fishermen that the that, that driver came across. And I sat around the board of Whitefish for him for many years. And you know, learned some tricks of the trade from him, and certainly about his wisdom as well. very, very wise man. We didn't always agree, and there's occasions that yeah. we never agreed. but you know, looking back now, he was formidable, he was wise, he was articulate, and he was intelligent, and I would never take any of that away from I him. I
0: remember again when I talk about I'm talking about the seventies, late sixties to mid seventies. And I was up one evening and there was a young lad he just did his first boat and he was on the pier and there was this, let's say a salesman and he was just a sharp, sharp salesman and he was trying to put the hard sail on this guy. But ropes and gear and stuff, and I knew I could see this. i was friendly with the lad, and he was unsure, and the guy was pushing and pushing him hard. But there was no mobile phones at that time, and I just left the two of them and ran to the kiosk. phoned Nori Bremner. I says Nori, I wonder if I could pass somebody to you to have a word with him and a bit of advice. He says, yeah, hold, I says, I'll just have to, if you hold on, I'll just run back to the pier and get the guy. I don't want, it's not fair to mention his name. So I went back to the, two of them are still in the discussion and I says, Alec, there's a guy on the phone wanting to speak to you. He's needing to speak to you. So uh, and that was what I wanted to do—is get him get them away from this <laughs> sharp <laughs> salesman. And I, I explained to Nori before I went what what was happening and going on. And I said I would like them, you know, if you could give him a bit of advice and confidence to know what he's doing. And away he went to the kiosk and came back saying, "No, no, I know what I'm doing now, and I'm." No need in anything. Thank you very much. and thank me for doing it. but but what what to have people like that was for young fishermen is was fantastic.
1: yeah, and you know, I guess people have come to me in the last decade and asked for advice, and I thought, well, you know how am I well placed to give advice to you? And well, you are well placed because you've seen a lot of what's been on in the past. You know you've had advice given to me you know i've had advice given to me from people who were in the position that i'm in now in the past so yeah we've got to give time to anyone who wants advice Uh, they may think it's right or wrong but you can only tell them in accordance with what you think is the right thing and the best way forward and i always try and, and and do that and i always say to people that my door is always open you know you may not like me you may not like what i do but notwithstanding, I do have a you know high degree of experience in the sector across a number of fields. So, you know, please feel free to come and ask me. And they do, and they, and they do. And I'm very very pleased to to basically give that wisdom where I can.
0: Something you you've been discussing there, Michael. Now I would have personally been very careful about asking you the question, but from what the people you mentioned yourself, I feel quite. Free to uh, clear to a- ask you when you meet, mention people like Tom Hay and Johnny Thompson and Fal, were you were you on in Fal or connected with it? Was that your sort of leanings?
1: No, it, it wasn't. You know, I was always in the camp that whatever you believe, you keep talking to people. You know i've never been of a belief that you should leave meetings you should cut yourself off and indeed you know people may say differently but you know the ethos of fall at that time was to disengage and then campaign from outside i always felt that campaigning from within was the best way forward so on that basis i was never attracted by the discussion points or the direction they were taking. I was never never convinced by that. And even even now, Jim, you know, recently with the NGOs and the government, you know, we've in discussions about, well, if government's going to let NGOs in, we've got to walk. You know, my position on that is wait a minute. That is a discussion forum that you're entering. And if you have any thought about your own ability to negotiate and discuss, then what you need to do is stay in that room and make sure that you're the sensible person in there. In the absence of that, other people consume the space. And I don't think as a sector like we are, the fishing industry, I don't think we can just step out and let other people consume that space. And that's always been the ethics and the wisdom that I've tied to deploy to anything that you may not like what's going on, but at the end of the day, it's your responsibility as an industry leader to stay in the game and try and steer that game. And I did feel at the time, fall, you know, took the easy way out, which is about we don't like this, let's get out, and we'll throw stones from outside. For me, that's never been a plausible way ahead, and it's not, it's not something that I've been willing to accept over my career. Uh, yeah,
0: I tend to feel I'm very similar to that way of thinking myself. You're, you're, you can, you're better within. Yeah, I would always say, stay in, and you have you're able to influence maybe but outside you're not and take going forward with that a uh, with from an industry point of view it's a discussion i had with michael kaiser the fishery scientist from Heriot watt where he felt the industry needs to take ownership for itself and the uh, territorial rights and all that where it was discussed michael was when i was asking him about you know the we've had which you know full well a horrendous problem just now with some of the non-uk fishing boats uh, doing the west uh well right round shetland now doing the west coast and that they're not they're not getting monitored they're no it's it's Almost, you could say, out of hand. But and but as, what what Michael was saying with in, in that context, well, he says if you have ownership, which seemingly there's a case of it in the Isle of Man, where they've and he says that way, anybody, whether it's a foreign boat or a UK or a local boat, you have control of the fishery, the quota, and, and if they're breaking the laws and not doing things properly, he says you can, whether it's French registered, Spanish, Scottish, whatever, he says you can put them out and stop them.
1: Yeah, so let me premise what I'm going to say is that I have a lot of respect for Mike Kaiser. I know him well and, you know, I've been a director with the Seafish Board for a vast number of years and he's at the top of his tree and he speaks very wisely. Uh, The complication, and I get what you've said just now, Jeff, but the complication in the current situation is the fact that we are still under the the conditions of the TCA, Uh, you know, the agreed settlement with Europe as we exited and you can't do anything that's discriminatory in nature. And recently we've been sitting down with some of the Scottish static gear vessels and the Shetland boats and Shetland leaders and myself and some of my skippers to try and work out a way to try and solve this, this issue of conflict in the high seas, which is, you know, it's widely reported from from time to time. And one of the issues that we face is that, you know, if you're gonna do something to, to static gear vessels in terms of reduced numbers. You just can't do it in foreign vessels. That that would be illegal in the TCA and you would take action, legal action against but, you. So certainly until 2026, there's not much we can do other than try and create some sort of concordat that allows or permits static gear vessels and mobile gear vessels like trawlers and the Shelf Edge to operate together. And it would have to be legislated because in the absence of regulation or legislation, anarchy prevails, and that's the situation we have currently. Uh, So we need to try and work out a sensible solution in the meantime. After 2026, when the TCA is up for review, it may be different. But until that time, there's certainly pressures in there that we're finding it hard to deal with. If I could
0: break that into two uh, discussion points, Michael. One is, in the run up to 2026. Now, this is maybe my perception, and I'm wrong, but I was of the mind up until 2026. It might, it could be possible from the point of view, it's not discriminatory because it's any vessel fishing, they would have to be members of this to fish in our patch. And doesn't matter. It wouldn't be discriminatory because it wouldn't matter what they're, if they weren't going by the rules. Well, it's the same. It applies to everybody.
1: Yeah, it, I mean it is complicated that you you, could, you couldn't put in a measure that only impacts non UK registered vessels and not UK vessels. I mean, what you could do is you could say, right, we're going to have a maximum of six non-UK vessels, static gear vessels, west of Scotland's Area 6A, and six from, you know, UK registered vessels. But remember, we do have a, a vast number of UK registered static gear vessels. And okay, they're flagged. Nevertheless, they're still UK registered. So it does become extremely difficult that whatever you do to any non-UK vessel, you have to do to your yeah. own vessels. And that would always be like self-harming for the Scottish government. What we are trying to do, Jim, is find a midway just now that can allow everyone to operate together some sort of concord that leaves corridors open for mobile gear to operate and static gear to operate now that sounds simple but it's very complicated to, to put in a regulation that delivers that we've already put forward the regulation from shetland and ourselves that we think would satisfy that but of course there's been pushback in that that it's too complicated so we're now waiting for others to come forward a regulation that can deliver some sort of concord that, uh, but isn't overly complicated, but I think that's a challenge in itself. So yeah, I mean, ideally we'd like a shared space that everyone can operate in a very collegiate way within, but because of the numbers involved and because of the small C space that we're talking about, relatively speaking, it is, it is an immense challenge, but we are looking to deliver something and that will be taken through FMAC which is the Fisheries Management and Conservation Group, that will be basically delivering all this sort of future-catching policy. So that will be coming through there. But it is a challenge, Jim, and it's not it's not an easy task. No, I
0: wouldn't imagine it was. And the other when I wanted to split that into two points. The other one was be confident that by after 2026, we will get a favourable break and
1: settlement. I don't want to sound defeatist, Jim, because that, that, that would be wrong. But I think, you know, we've already marched the troops up to the top of the hill, and we had to march them down again, pretty much. We had our day in the sun, and that day in the sun was the run up to Brexit. And if we were ever going to deliver, that was the time, that was the space. And you know, all the hyperbole by people like Michael Gove et al let us down dramatically dramatically. There is the possibility that post-2026, we can get some gains, and we will try and deliver that. But at the end of the time, to deliver change, you need political will, both in the EU and the UK. And as you know, we're going to go into an election probably autumn of next year, and it may be that we have a different colour of government. Now, the the size and the magnitude of any shift post-2026 will be dependent on the relationship that any new government wants with the EU. And if any new government wants a close working relationship with the EU, then it may be that things like fisheries, because remember, energy is attached to fisheries as well when it comes up for review. It may be that things like that are pushed aside for that favorable relationship. So I'm not going to promise anything to anyone because, you know, we've been there in the past and, and pretty much we let ourselves down. So, there is the possibility of change, but there again, that depends on others. We can hold the feet to the fire on the issue, but it depends where your government wants to position themselves politically in terms of their relationship with europe
0: i uh, it's it's i I hear what you're saying, and you've probably been quite realistic because but you're almost saying you're almost saying that that you're ourselves, as an industry, we have maybe something to look at, whereas I would have said, with Brexit, we were shafted.
1: (laughs) Yeah, we (laughs) we were, Uh, yeah, you know, know, when I, I said hyperbole, right, but excuse my words, I could put it differently, we were fed bullshit. And you know, that's what we were fed for a number of years in the lead up to that. And when we and you know industry leaders did their own sort of risk assessment about, you know, possible wins, possible losses, the deal that was delivered at the end of the day was way beyond the lower level of what we thought could be delivered. So we were highly let down at that time. You know, you know, Heath Heath shafted us in the way in, and once again we were shafted in the way out. And who knows in the future policy, the stance of the SNP about becoming members of Europe again, it may be that yeah, there's another going in shafting coming along the way uh, at some point as well. So who knows, Jim? Uh, but I'm not going to promise anything to anyone because you know these sort of deals are fickle, and they you know they're determined by politics of the day, and who knows what that will be.
0: No, I. I totally appreciate where you're coming from because it's all very well for me to be chatting about it, but you, in your position, you could be quoted. So I can I can totally
1: understand that. Yeah, I used to be an eternal optimist, uh, Jim. To be fair. But now, you know, I'm an optimistic pessimist. So uh, it's slightly
0: different. I mean, I, I know from a number of the fishermen I speak, in fact, one of them in particular, I used John Buchan from Peterhead. He put a different perspective on it. And I've just sent him one day, any time I saw an image of Boris, be it on television, on a newspaper, anything, I just would look at it and say, you sh- B, you shafted us? But he says, "Well, he says I don't think so." And he didn't see that. He says he reckoned that Theresa May before him took the ground from under his feet, and he had nothing to, left to go on. So the bargain on.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. I mean, you can look back, and you can you can you know you can lay accusations of guilt at various people but at the end of the day you know we were the poster boy of brexit people understood you know the civil society understood why the fishing industry should get a good deal but if it was a balance between you know delivering you know financial institutions to london or doing down a few fishermen you know we all know what the the course and the action would be and at the end of the day that's exactly what
0: happened yeah I could just change the subject. I'm mean, going back to what you were saying about the the three million pound grant you got and the premises you're building. What you were saying there, you have I think there's offices in that, but there's some training facilities. What what is what are that?
1: Yeah, so currently, I mean, NEFTA, the North East Fisherman Training Association, uh, we sit on the board of that, as do the pelagic sector and others. And they deliver a tre- tremendous amount of, you know, courses for at sea, safety at sea, and various other ones. I think currently they deliver 810 training days a year. But they're doing it in a cold church hall 12 miles from the shore because there is no, you know, bespoke training facilities. And, you know, recruiting young people into the sector is difficult as well. If the first thing you're going to show them is a cold church that you're going to do training in in the winter where you've got to wear your woolies to be able to stay awake basically. So we need need to do something to professionalize the sector. So the new building will provide uh, a boardroom for anyone to use. It'll provide state-of-the-art training facilities with virtual capabilities. It'll provide offices for the training facilities. We have a crew services company where we bring in a non-UK crew for the sector. They'll have offices. The Federation will probably have offices for some of the work they do in the market. And then uh, Fraserburgh, the Seafood Association, Jimmy Bucking et al. They will have offices in there as well. So basically what you'll have is a, a seafood center of excellence that hopefully we can use as the catalyst for the next generation of young seamen that want to come into the sector or see women, in fact, that want to come into the sector. So, if nothing else, it puts us on the map. Because, as I said, and I don't want to over-articulate this, but, you know, someone young coming into the sector doing the first training day in a cold church 12 miles from the land, I'm not necessarily sure that that delivers the right signal, to be fair. So, at least, you know, Boris, for what he is, We've managed to get 3% of his $100 fund up to Fraser to build these new offices. And it means that, you know, as an association, we are putting down a high degree of members' cash as well to build that. But hopefully, at the end of the day, we will be proud of what we're building. And I've said to the negotiators here this week, remember for the negotiations in 2025 that we want you. To come up to Fraserburgh to hold that fisheries negotiations in the heartland of the fishing industry uh, within our new premises in our new building
0: yeah could i just go on from there can you make your involvement and what is north the northern fishing alliance
1: yeah so while we were a member of europe and during one of the cfp reforms the european commission come up with the regional advisory councils and there was the North Sea Regional Advisory Council, which we sat on, uh, which I was vice chair of, there was the North Northwest Waters Regional Advisory Council that we participated in, there was the Long Distance Advisory Council, the Pelagic Advisory Council, and there was a number of other ones as well. But it was obvious to, to me and others that post-Brexit, there was gonna be no facility for industry leaders or industry from different countries to sit down Uh, to discuss issues of common interest. So, binding around the issue we had with COD in 2018, we sat down with colleagues from Norway and Denmark and Copenhagen to work out what we could see in COD, but more importantly, what could we do as industry leaders to start binding people together in a post-Brexit situation in a non-political level? So we set about hosting the first COD meeting in which we invited the Swedish, the Danes, the Germans, the Dutch, the Belgians, you know, the English are in there, ourselves, Shetland, the Irish. So we're all in there now. So the Northern Fishing Alliance, in summary, is a get together, an informal, informally structured grouping of people on a non-political way or a non-political level that get together to discuss issues of common interest. We've now produced to the negotiating teams, ahead of these negotiations, five papers in COD. We've produced two papers in Monkfish. We've produced a paper on Ling. Uh, so that's, that's what the Northern Fishing Alliance is. It's a non-political, post-Brexit, informal structure that allows industry leaders and fishermen to sit down around the same table to come up with position papers of common interest to give to the negotiating teams. Okay,
0: yeah. And what, Who? where's all the members in that from?
1: Currently we have members from Norway. We have members from Sweden, Germany, Denmark, Belgium, Netherlands, France. Uh, we've got representatives from England, Scotland, in Northern Ireland, uh, Shetland send their own representatives as well. And that cuts across associations, producer organizations, uh, and the work that we get on with, we've produced some really you know high-level interesting papers. Because remember, Jim, that you know fishing associations now and POs also have their own scientists. So whereas ISIS has the scientists, government have the scientists, industry now have their own scientists as well. And that helps people like me write position papers because they're supported by you know real scientific knowledge. So whereas before fishermen said we want more fish because we were known as that's all you ever ask for is more fish. Now we want the, the you know the the, the the deliverable amount of fish based on the best scientific information, taking into consideration sustainable attitudes and approaches. So it's not about asking for more than we should get. But it's about ensuring we should get from what the advice is saying, which is significantly different.
0: Yeah, one of the other things that when I was doing a podcast just last week, I'm hoping it'll be been out tomorrow, to a guy Mark Dicky Collins from ISIS, and I asked him, I questioned him about the. Current situation we cod. And I said, you've put a 63% increase last year. And I says, but the which sounds a lot, I says, but the general consensus of fishermen as well. It I said 63% of nothing is nothing. And I says you were from such a low point. So 63%. Looks big in percentage, but it it didn't amount to all that much. And it says now you're looking at a seventeen percent d- reduction, and as we people see it as with the fact that it's because of the situation in the south, in the southern North Sea, it's almost like robbing Peter to pay Paul, This is Peter been around the Shetlands and Paul been the poor relation down in the south. And he more or less come back saying, that's not a question for ISIS, it's a manager's question.
1: It's, yeah, it's it's an interesting response that Mark gave, and I have a lot of time for Mark, he's done well in the chair of ACOM, he's a very You know, good scientist, and he's a very nice guy, to be be fair. It's interesting that he says that because, you know, the ISIS advice and the the three sub-stocks now, because post the recent benchmark on Northern COD, we now have these three sub-stocks. And if you apply the maximum sustainable yield approach, it gives you 34,000 tonne. But ISIS and the wisdom have said, well, we need to protect that southern component and especially some of the element of mixing that goes on. So, on that basis, we suggest 22,000 ton. Now, what Mark's saying there in his response is, well, you know, we just give the evidence as, you know, we don't manage the stocks and we don't present management options. That's for the managers, that's for the negotiators. Uh, but that's not what they've done. They've given headline advice that suggests because of that risk, The overall catch from these sub-stocks should be down at 22,000. Now, remember, the overall opportunities this year between west and east uh, in terms of Area 6 and Area 4 is 27,000 tonne. So what they're suggesting is giving you significantly less at 22,000 tonne next year than you had this year at a time when the stock is on the increase. Now, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to understand that that's just not right. It's just not right. And the recent paper by the Northern Fishing Alliance pretty much does that and criticizes ISIS uh, in terms of this is complete overreach on your part. Their part is to provide the evidence, not to suggest how risks should be managed. That is a manager's role and ISIS is not equipped to come up or determine what that should be. So, you know, there's a slight annoyance in the sector that that has been done by ISIS because You know, we are now left trying to put forward some serious narrative that allows you to walk away from that position towards a higher position. And with the pressure of the NGOs currently, and indeed the European Commission has been dragged through the courts by client earth on similar issues, there is a reticence to move from that headline advice, which from an industry perspective is just ridiculous.
0: But he also he also goes on to say, which is interesting, Michael, and maybe it's something that you're you're onto from what you say, because you've just reminded me of another point he made. That, and I thought it was quite honest and open, and I, th- I found him very fair and reasonable in the various points we put to him. But he said, "Look, with blueing." No, not blue ling. With I think it's mackerel and or maybe horse mackerel. Some of the pelagic, blue whiting. Sorry, blue whiting and mackerel. He says their advice in the a few years ago was you're fishing too hard. It's not sustainable. He says and the fish they kept catching, they kept fishing, they kept fishing. And He says we had to we had to accept and admit we were wrong. So is it maybe a point, or you could maybe keep at him on cod and say you're wrong again?
1: Yeah, I mean I think you know there is there is a high degree of caution just now because post benchmark we're taking a different approach with cod, and I I get the need to be cautious. I I I do, but. Given you know the empirical evidence by the fishermen, given the advice that's now come up from ICES, take away the headline management advice, things seem to be rosy. And notwithstanding you weren't going, you know, the full MSY approach, which would be delivered above thirty-four thousand ton, I think at the end of the day we should, when we set attack a tolerable catch, it should be up at that upper level rather than down at that twenty-two thousand ton that ICES has has recommended. But we need to keep at it. I mean, over time, you know, I guess the advice will be given on area-based rather than just subpopulation based which will make it easier for the managers to, to, to manage. Uh, but, yeah, we are going through a period of flux with COD, but we need to ensure that we don't provide less opportunities to the fleet than we need to. And that's why managers, during these negotiations that are going on this week, and indeed back in Brussels in two weeks' time, that what we do is deliver a total allowable catch for COD that is both sensible and sustainable and takes into account the operations of the fleets on the seas.
0: Yeah, yeah. In addition to that, I would say, one of the things I said to Mark was, I said, look, as far as I've talked to a lot of fishermen, and I says I can tell you, the genuine, genuine concern with them is you're cutting cod, you're looking at the, proposing to cut cod. said so all you need to do now is something with monks, the monkfish. And I says, you're, they have a serious concern about their viability. I says, it's, no, it's, it's not greed we're talking about here or just get more and more. I says, we're talking serious concerns of the viability, the future of a, a lot of the fleet. And do um, you know, in uh, fairness to him, he says, I totally accept that.
1: Mm, yeah. I mean, we have a saying, Jim, and you've heard it before, that it all comes out of the cod end, you know? And, and if you've nothing to come out of the cod end, then, you know, paying the fuel bills, which are higher now than ever before, paying the interest rate to the bank, which is the highest in some of the lifetimes of the fishermen are going to see, you know, the volatility of prices you know, it's not a good period for us just now, and that's why we need to, you know, enforce upon the managers that you know you're, you're making life, life, life mattering decisions here. If you get this wrong, chances are there could be a hyper consolidation of the fleet because the profitability and the economic sort of fabric is not there anymore.
0: Yeah, I mean, I had a situation yes just yesterday. I'm. Like, um... The young salesman in Scrabster, the auctioneer, is on holiday, and he asked me to step in and and help him, which I was delighted to do. And I was selling a boat's fish on the auction yesterday. Now, the skipper is standing there at the sale, which I always like when I'm selling fish, because it shows that there's an interest and they're care and, and they're concerned. So he's standing there at the sale, after the sale, he comes up and in the conversation, this is 100%, this is the skipper, he says, no, he says, Jim, you did a good job there. I'm happy with the price you got. The monkfish was the, from £180 a box uh, to over just over £200 a box. So you could say possibly they wouldn't quite average £200 a box, but we're not. Which which sounds a good price, and I was I felt happy with it, and he's telling me so. As far as I'm concerned, when the skipper's telling me he's happy, that's I often say to them, if you're happy, I'm jumping for joy. <laughs> but do you know what he followed up with? His leasing costs for that monkfish a hundred and fifteen pound a box, two thousand three hundred pound a ton. So, so this, the, lease, the person he leased them from is getting more than the man that's catching them, which I just thought is a system that
1: is all wrong. Yeah, and, you know, in, in our days, there used to be trophies for gross and everything. You had the golden haddock and phrase, but, uh, yeah, you used to talk about, well, who's the best grossing vessel? It doesn't matter anymore because the litmus test is the amount of money you're, you're left with at the end of the day. And when you take into account lease costs, that distorts that figure quite dramatically. So the the vessel that that probably you know is middle of the road, but he's enough quota to cover what he's landing, is probably far more profitable than a vessel that's landing a lot of fish, but he doesn't have a lot of quota of his own. And that's just a fact, a fact of how the the uh, industry operates now. But of course, the Scottish government have just put out uh, consultation on the allocation of additional quota and, you know, the enthusiasm of the government is to get, you know, the additional fish to the people that catch it rather than give it to people who could then lease it. So it'll be interesting to see what the outcome of that consultation will be, Jim, to be fair. Well, that would be,
0: well, that would be, I would say, as you all see and goes, just as done because that's, it's, 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 (laughs) I, I just don't feel... Possibly I could be told I don't know enough about it, I wouldn't argue. But I feel the quota should be on the boat, on the people catching them, not with people, slipper skippers as they're sometimes
1: known. Yeah, I mean, there was a rationale, a sound rationale at the time for allowing that process to happen. And the way they allocated fish between the license and the boat and everything, which allowed you to disaggregate it, etc., that it allowed industry to pay for its own consolidation, pretty much. So you could sell your quota on, sell your boat on, sell your license. So the industry financed, take away the big decommissioning schemes, the industry itself, you know, financed feature consolidation through that route. So there was a, a reason behind it, uh, because the original system didn't work. We all had the same fish and that just didn't work either. But yeah, you know, the fishing industry is it's it's got many components to it now. And it's not just about who catches the most fish. It's about who operates the most efficient operation. That's a different achievement now from what it was in my day, which was go out, do what you do and catch as much as you can of the best quality fish you can. Nowadays, boats routinely steam away from the best quality yeah, fish.
0: That's 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 what I meant by my comment earlier that it's not just a skipper now, it's a businessman. Because they're not yeah. just catching fish, they're negotiating yeah. quota and everything. It's much
1: it's it's interesting, Jim, that you know, on a number of occasions over the last four or five years, skipper have come to me and they've said, you know, I'd like to get out, but what else can I do? And I've said to them, you come to me and give me an hour, sit down, talk to me. I'll write a CV for you that you will not recognize because of all the skill sets that you need to put together to run your operation. And it's true. It's true. You know, if you take time to write a CV for any skipper, that has a vessel operating his own operation you know human resources getting crew whether it be foreign crew or home crew keeping your certificates up to pace negotiating with a bank for cheap loans you know you can provide a CV for that individual that many many people would be proud of
0: yeah I, I, I totally I agree with that because yeah yeah they're they're everything word what's your views on the Sustainability been forward and the
1: the m s c involvement the you know the fishing industry now is different from what was in the past, and you know our mind is is on about sustainable harvesting it's about maintaining stock biomass because the fisherman in today has very much got the future in mind because he's he's making large investments more often than not, so he needs to be sure that whatever he's doing. Can, can stay in place well into the future and you know many of the fishermen now see the yield from the stocks as what you should harvest rather than the capital you know so just take out what the yield can produce every year to make that biomass remain in place and per- perhaps build now if you put that in place which we have done uh, up in scotland you can then benchmark that by seeing how good you are. And the MSC certification is pretty much, you know, that benchmark. It's pretty much certification of what you've done. And it doesn't deliver you a better price or or anything else, but, you know, certification of what you're doing in terms of MSC allows you to remain in the game. It defends your market share and allows you to build on that market share. Because, for instance, Haddock just now, in terms of the MSC certification, that goes into Marks & Spencer's, Rose and other retailers. In the absence of that, they would probably purchase from Norway or Faro or Iceland. So maintaining that certification is useful because it, because it basically ring fences that market share. And as I say, allows you to to build on it. But as you know, we've come out of Europe, we are now a way to, to create our own you know, catch policies and everything. It may be that we move away from the landings obligation and the discard ban. We're certainly moving in a direction where you have cameras on board. You know, we will need to get selectivity improvements. We will have to reduce our unwanted catches to the lowest possible level. We will have to make certain adjustments to make sure that we can maintain that certification in terms of the MSC stuff. But more importantly, Jim, and it's something we haven't mentioned just now, that, you know, worker-driven social responsibility, welfare, well-being of crew, is as important to the sector going forward as sustainability of the resource. Actually ensuring your crew's welfare and well-being as is important, if not more important. So there's a number of factors that, that, that over the next few years we need to make sure that we can maintain and build on, and where necessary, benchmark that so others are aware of what a good job we doing.
0: Yeah, I mean, the complications, I have to admit, it's beyond me almost. But one of the things I, another thing I mentioned to Mark from the ISIS, uh, I said, how the expert, it must be really difficult for a, when a skipper on board his boat. I said, just Take it. I says we're out at Rockall, fishing away. The nets hauled. There's monkfish in the net. There's cod and there's haddock. I says all in the same net from the same area. And I says yet and yet, when he has to take his paper out and record them, he has to. It's for different the different species in different areas how can that be he kind of felt well that it's uh, that as well as more a manager's uh, issue and also there should be he feels that there should be more it should be viewed more as a mixed fishery than specific uh, species
1: yeah, I mean it's it's difficult. I mean I would always ask everyone to stay away from mixed fisheries advice because if you apply mixed fisheries approaches to to mixed fisheries, essentially, you have to, you know, harvest in accordance with the weakest stock. Uh so you would have to reduce catches and everything else to make sure you're you're protecting the weakest stock in that, that sort of mixed fisheries ecosystem. Uh, whereas if you just apply single stock advice, you can take a tack at the level that that advice suggests you should on that single stock. So you can maximize the yield in each stock in accordance with the advice. Mixed fisheries advice means that sometimes you've got to take significantly less than any one stock than, than you should be able to. So, you know, I'm very much a proponent of being cautious, very, you know, cautionary in terms of mixed fisheries advice. Although, you know, I can see some merits in it, but, uh, none that would benefit the sector i don't think in terms of the economics
0: i'm very pleased to hear you say that michael because it tells me that you've got your finger on the pulse because i i have to say that my response to put my, hand up, my response to mark was i view the scottish fishery as one of the biggest multi species fisheries in the world And he says, no, no way. He says the Mediterranean, Caribbean, he says there's lots of areas with a much more diverse uh, mixed fishery than the UK. So, but from the point that you made there, I think that's encouraging to see the person uh, with the position you are in the negotiations and that the way you're viewing that. Well done.
1: Yeah, and you look at the Mediterranean, it's a basket case. They've never managed to address some of the situations in the Mediterranean. In the North Sea, the West of Scotland, we've done a tremendous amount to actually recover our stocks. Remember, it was the fishermen that proposed spawning aggregations for cod. That was a big step for the, for our industry. It was the fishermen that worked with others to put in the the area to protect spawning aggregations of blue ling. We worked with WWF to put in a, an area at Rockhold to pr- to protect cold water corals. So when when people say to me, well, you know, you're a fisherman, you just want to catch everything. No, we don't. You don't, no. You're talking about the people that perhaps came before us. But that's not the modern fisherman. The modern fisherman has a business plan. He needs income. He needs to protect the asset base. And as far as he's concerned, the asset base is the fish in the sea. And all he wants to do is harvest the yield. He does not want a boom and bust scenario. So if anyone thinks that nowadays, they're reading the wrong books because that's not us and that's not the way we think nowadays.
0: No, well that's, 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 well, yeah, good answer. That's, that's, that's great to hear that. No, I think it's encouraging. And a word if pulled up, Michael, and close, what's a day in the life, an average day in the life of Mike Park? Oh, that's
1: a good question, Jim. Well, you know, this week uh, I was in the office Monday. So ordinarily I rise at six in the morning. I shower. I leave the house about 20 past six. I'm in the office by half seven. I leave the office about four. I go to the gym. I go home. Uh, that's That's a normal day if I'm not traveling probably four or five times a year. I'm visiting our agents, overseas agents, that supply and supply foreign crew, and that's only three, four days with 22, 24 hour flights in Sri Lanka, Ghana, Indonesia. This week, uh, I've had five flights so far. Uh, my wife's not keeping well, so every night I've been getting back. So I've been you know, up at four o'clock in the morning, getting a flight at six, down to London, get back home at 10 at night, take the dog for a walk, check my wife, take a dog for a walk in the morning, Back on the six o'clock flight and down here, so you know I'll be back tonight and I'll be back down at six and uh, six o'clock flight in the morning again. Uh, so that's that's pretty much a traditional uh, day for Mike Park. What does my workload entail? Uh, writing reports of meetings we've had, writing position papers for the Northern Fishing Alliance, uh, working with others in terms of Shetland, who are close allies of ours things like you know the static gear management plan what does that look like uh, we just say we drew up a regulation but we're also involved in msc which i chair i chair the northern fishing alliance i chair the scottish sea fish advisory group i head up box pool solutions so when you add it all together there, there's enough in there to keep to keep me uh, and others busy i guess what flows over from my fishing days, Jim, is that I don't watch the clock. I do what I need to do to get through the work. You know, this week it's been you know, 18, 16, 18 hours days. I don't moan about it because I know my members are putting in more time than I am. So I'm not work shy, never have been. And at the end of the day, what I want is a very profitable and stable fishing industry. That is my goal in life, profitable and stable.
0: That's really encouraging and commendable. I wasn't quite expecting you to say a uh, answer that way because when you're saying here, you go to the office, you go to the gym, you come back. Because in the last short time, days, possibly week or so, two at the most, any conversations I've had with you, you've been in Brussels, you've been in London. <laughs> You've been everywhere, so I think, and I can't understand yeah. how you you don't look at a clock because you must be catching planes. and. <laughs> yeah, it's
1: it's yeah, in terms of being able to be in the right place at the right time, but you know, I, I don't think, well, I can't get up at six in the morning, I can't do this at seven at night. If the job demands it, the job gets it. And every one of my team is exactly the same, that they're fully committed uh, to what we do because we know the job of our members is more difficult than ours so you know they don't get us slacking not in my watch
0: if i could ask you when it comes to negotiations a eh, in fact mark dickie cole has mentioned that how, how he can almost not get people like yourself very difficult to contact them from about september onwards because you're always involved in negotiations and things with a year end and new quotas and things. See when you're getting to that stage and you're going forward, where do you get your, you know, your 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 bargaining positions and your negotiating positions? Where where, where does that come? Where does that how how do you do you get that from members or do you is it your yourself
1: or a mix a mixture? It's a, it's, a, it's a mixture. I mean, we, we, we work WhatsApp groups and we get views from our members through WhatsApp groups. We hold meetings, end of, end of year priority meetings, uh, where you know, a significant number of members attend. Well, what is your priority here? Is it getting a solution in the Norwegian negotiation? What is more important in terms of uh, currency exchanges? Is it faro and access to faro waters? What are the priorities this year? Is it cod? Is it fighting off a reduction in monkfish? in terms of the Haddock quota. You could have two to 200% increase, what do you want here? And then you have to then balance that again, what you think the asks are of other member states. So it's, it's, it's almost like playing three dimensional chess. So we always sit down internally, we work out what our priorities are. We meet with the Scottish government, we give them a list of our priorities, and indeed they will draw up a list of Scottish priorities in terms of what I've put forward, the Gatt from the Plagic Association have put forward, the POs have put forward. And then they have to go down to DEFRA and then form a UK list of priorities from which they'll draw from when de- negotiating with Norway and the EU and FARO. And, and, and once that is established, my role in life is to act as you know, the, the, the expert in the room. If someone asks you a question, what do you want? Is it A, B or C? Tell me now you've got five minutes. My role in life is to say, do you know what? We want A. Never matter about B and C, we want A. And that's my role in life. And it may not please everybody all of the time, but these positions are established, having talked to members, having talked to other associations. But that is us, we are we are the industry experts on the room. Do we get into a lot of these meetings? No, my life and the life of Ian Gatt and Simon Collins is spent in the corridors. We're there if you want to come out and ask us a question. What we don't want is you to make a decision and for us to say you got that wrong. So that's our role in life is to to assist managers in getting to the right negotiated Would position.
0: it be better if you were in the even, although you weren't actually negotiating, if you were in the room so that you could advise them as meetings are going on? So that they're in the
1: wrong. They're not in the wrong. It was, it's interesting that our perception of a post-Brexit life was like the Norwegian industry in the room with the negotiators at the time. But I I would say, I'm going to say something, and it may not be right, but it's my perception that COVID came along at the right time for government in terms of negotiations, because they could keep you at a distance they could keep you virtually. So there was no pressure on them at that time to get you into the room because the negotiations were virtually and they could just keep you out of the room by not sending you a link. So that came along at the right time for them. But essentially we would like to be in the room, but you know the makeup of the UK industry where you've got flag vessels operating in the UK, it becomes very difficult to get a group of people together without leaks taking place in terms of positions to take the negotiations. So I get the risk on managers that, you know, they could put together an industry team, but because of the makeup of the UK industry, there would always be the threat of those positions being leaked, which would then weaken the position in the room. So I, I, I get all of that. But at the end of the day, Jim, as long as our positions are taken consideration of, that's all we ask, at the end of the day, the managers have to manage. And they will try and do it in a in a co-management way where they talk to you and take on board your views. But if at the end of the day, it doesn't satisfy or align with their political mandate, then they'll do what they need to do. And I think as industry leaders, we have just to accept that position.
0: Yeah. Do you feel, I don't want to put you in a spot, Michael, do you feel that you get, that they take you serious? and they're, f- been, they're listening to you. Do you think we're being
1: getting- I, I I do. I mean, I think more so now, Jim, than ever, because we're not just saying all the time, we want more fish, we want more fish, we want more fish. What we're doing is, we're deciding what we think is credible, and we are putting a sound, reasoned, position paper behind that. So it is, we think this should be delivered, and here is the rationale behind that conversation that we want to have with you, which is different from the past going into fishing news saying our managers must deliver X, Y, and Z or they've failed us. So there's a there's a significant difference in approach, but yeah, we, we think we're being heard, but at the end of the day, even those that are heard don't get everything they want. And I think, you know, we just need to appreciate it. Yeah, them. yeah. Would you, Maybe
0: just answer one more question. I'm, it's a thing I often think of and remember. And you can tell me, I hope you say it's not, but I just wondered if it's any different. I'm, I'm, I'm in my 70s, and I can remember as a kid, so that's going to probably 60 years ago, and I can still hear my father used to say, which was relative then, that fishing, industry was such a small percentage of the gross domestic pro- the gdp for the uk that it never got the importance that it should have got for uh, coastal communities where it's it could be everything the lifeblood do you feel that that's not the case any longer or
1: i feel that you know in terms of the GDP, we are probably of similar scale to the carrot industry or the lawnmower sector. So we're not, we're not a big share of GDP, but I think more than ever before, civil society understand the role we've got to play in maintaining the fabric of the coastal communities. The mere fact that we were the poster boy of Brexit, the mere fact that we got the support that we did Suggest that people now understand the fishing sector for what it is. It's not what it was in the past, what it is now and what it will be in the future is, you know, a sound source of maintaining this sort of coastal fabric. And remember, most people go to the seaside to get an away day. They go there for comfort, whether they like to play on the beach or listen to the waves breaking. And it takes people to keep that in place through work, through, you know, uh, getting work done on shore, through landings to the market, through incomes to the ports. So I think civil society understand that more than ever before. And I don't think they look upon us as the, yeah, the you know, the pirates of the sea. I think they're past that point and they pretty much look at us as trusted custodians.
0: Yeah, that's no, encouraging. Well, i would just like to thank you so much, Mike. And I'll just tell them the next day, uh, fisherman. I'm seeing. Don't worry, you're in safe hands, and you're gonna get a in, you're gonna get an increase in cod next year, and an increase
1: in monks. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I don't know about
1: an increase in monks, but uh, hopefully we won't get a decrease in monks, which is equally encouraging. Yeah, yeah. but it's been nice to chat. you Thank
0: it. you so much, and I do honestly feel the industry's in good hands and also I hope you're disappointed to hear about your wife and I hope she's stays well and is going again soon. I do hope that.
1: Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you very much John
0: Thank you for listening to this episode. If you liked it, hit subscribe, share it with a friend or leave a five star review. And if you want to speak with me, visit seafoodmatterspodcast.com.